Alright, so. So Galatians, he is, so far, he's right in the midst of his argument against going back to the law for righteousness. And so what what he's talking to them about is you can't go back their their idea remember of going back is not just you know we don't we don't listen to that Jesus guy but they loved Jesus they say yes Jesus is the way the truth and life but if you want to be right with God righteous with God then you you got to keep the law too you know you got to do the law of Moses you know we've been around the Jewish men would say we've been around here forever and God gave us these rules and by keeping these rules is how you uh maintain your spirituality and that's what last week remember that we talked about he was telling them you know that he was uh he was after them to make them more like christ not just to get followers for himself y'all remember that and so this week he the as we continue actually it's not broken up into sections but as we continue he says in verse 21 he says tell me you that desire to be under the law do you not hear the law? And now, when he's talking about the law, he's talking about the first five books of Moses, the Torah, the you know the 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 whole of the the whole of the section, not just the you know maybe the Ten Commandments or whatever else the law you know entailed. And well, the point that he's making is that these folks that are saying that you have to have uh, you have to keep these rules in order to be righteous, you have to. Uh, maintain your relationship with God through law keeping and keeping rules. They've misunderstood the intent of the law. They've misunderstood what the law was for. You remember, can anybody tell me last week we talked about the uses of the law, what the law is for? Any of y'all remember any of that? Like what's the purpose of the law? Silence. Who said that? Doug? Doug's walking in with the answer. You go, Doug. Yeah, the law is a mirror, right? It shows you how sinful you are. It shows you how holy God is. And it ultimately pushes you toward a Savior. It pushes you toward needing, understand that you need somebody to take your place. You need somebody to give you, you know, righteousness. So the purpose of the first five books of the law, the purpose of the law in Paul's mind and in reality is to they they point us to Jesus. They point us it's about Christ. It's about I'd love to go through Genesis one time and show you how Jesus is all through the book of Genesis and it's 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 all about who he is and and pointing toward the one that's to come. And so he's saying he's telling them he says you you who desire to be under the law. What does it mean to be under the law? We talked about that last week. If you desire to be under the law, what is he saying? What do you desire? If you're not under the law, does that mean it's okay for you to go murder people? Because we don't have to worry about the law. So what does it mean to be under the law? Nobody. Yeah, to be a slave to the law. To be... To think that the law is going to give you a brownie points. Yes. Be made righteous by the law. Yes, that's that's specifically what it means. That I'm thinking if I want to live under the law, 
what Paul's point is here is I want to I want the law to provide my righteousness. I want God to look down at my law keeping. I want him to look at my you know my obedience to his commands and I want him to count that obedience for my salvation. I want him to count that obedience for my righteousness before God. Is that a smart thing to do? Yeah, no, you don't want you don't want any of that brought up at your trial before the judge. I promise you, because we don't uh, we don't have any we don't have any righteousness. The law was never intended for to give us righteousness. And in the in the context of this story, this this not story, but this part of Galatians, it's all about being an inheritor of Abraham. God promised Abraham. You know, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a father of great nations. Through your seed, the whole nations will be blessed. And this is what these Judaizers were coming in and they were saying, you know what? We are the children of Abraham here. You can't just come and say, hey, we're, we're following Jesus and we're right before God. You, you got to deal with, you know, Abraham's, God made a promise to Abraham. And we're the offspring of Abraham. We're descended from Abraham. And so we inherit the promise of Abraham. And that's the whole, the whole thing in a nutshell, what Paul is going to d- demonstrate to them is that, no, you're not the seed of Abraham. Those of us who are in Christ are the seed of Abraham. And so he's saying, tell me that you who desire to be in the law, do you not hear the law? He's going to illustrate the rest of this section, the rest of this chapter is going to illustrate how they've misunderstood the story of Abraham, how they misunderstood what was going on. Verse 22 and 23 says, for it is written, he said, this is how they've misunderstood the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, a slave woman, and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Now, they claim to be sons of Abraham. Well, Paul's bringing wait, 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 wait a minute now. Abraham had two sons. He had one that was born to slave woman. Who was a slave woman? Hagar. Hagar, yeah. Haggai is the book of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and who was the free woman? Sarah. Sarah. Interestingly enough, Sarah's name is never mentioned in this, but anyway. Hagar, you almost had me saying Hagar. Hagar and Sarah, okay? One was born according to the flesh. Who was that? No. Ishmael. That's right. You was one generation behind. Ishmael and the one part of the promise was Isaac. Okay. What does it mean? They were both Abraham's kids. But he says one was born according to the flesh and one was born by promise. And his point here, just to before we even get into Ishmael and Isaac, his point behind this is you can't say just because you're descending from the line of Abraham that you're a son of the promise. Because Abraham had two sons that were descended from him. And so you could be, you know, you could be descended from him and not be descended, uh, not be a seed of the promise, not be an inheritor of the promise. Now, for a Jewish man, he would say, oh, I'm not the descendant of Ishmael. I'm the descendant of Isaac. And so he's saying that one was born according to the flesh. One was born, born to, according to the promise. How was he born according to the flesh? Anybody know the story? Can you give me a synopsis of the story of how Ishmael and Isaac was born? Because God had promised. They weren't able to have kids. Sarah and Abraham wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, they were old, like 90, 99 when they had 
Isaac. Y'all like to have a kid when you're 99? It'd be awesome. Did Sarah tell him to take her box? Mm-hmm, yes. Okay, so what happened, and, and we definitely ought to go through Genesis eventually. I'm sure we will. What happened was God promised Abraham an heir. An heir to the promise, an heir that would be the blessing, that would, you know, all these things. And, and so God promised, but year went by, another year went by, another year went by, and there's no fulfillment in sight. And Abraham's just getting older and older and older and older, and Sarah's just getting older and older and older. And so they decide, Sarah and Abraham, actually Sarah decided and she convinced Abraham that what we're going to do is we're going to help God's promise along a little bit. And he, Sarah gave Abraham Hagar, her servant, and said, just get busy with her and have Ishmael and then that will have a son. And so we'll kind of help God's promise along. You see how it kind of corresponds to what Paul is saying here in Galatians? They were trying to, by works, fulfill the promise that God had made by their own effort, by their own striving, by their own ingenuity. They were trying to get what God had promised by their own works. And so he was born according to the flesh. Now, they were both Abraham's kids, uh, but he was born according to the flesh because he, by his own works, decided, I'm going to help God's promise along a little bit. You know, we're waiting and waiting and waiting and we're just getting older and older and older and there's no, no son in sight. So uh, Sarah convinced him to go ahead and take Hagar and have a kid with him. Now, Ishmael was born. And it was all good. Abraham treated him like a son. Abraham was proud of him. And there came a time when God said, you know, I'm about to fulfill the promise. I'm about to give you a son through Sarah. Uh, and this is going to be the promised seed. This is going to be the inheritor of my promise. Abraham actually uh, asked God if he would stop and let Ishmael inherit the promise. He said, oh, that, you know, I think it's Genesis 17. I wrote it in that outline if you, if you got it. Uh, in Genesis, he said, oh that, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. Oh, that you would let Ishmael in, inherit the promise, inherit the, be the inheritor. And God said, no, no, Ishmael will not inherit the promise for me. He said, I'll give you a son. And that son, of course, was Isaac. It was a miraculous birth. Uh, Sarah's 99 years old, you know, had a baby. You know, that must have been awesome, you know, for her. But, uh, you know, and so he, that was a miraculous act of God that this baby was born at this time. Even, even put aside the fact that she was old, too old to have babies. But she was barren to start with, which is why they couldn't have no babies. And so this barren woman who couldn't have babies was miraculously, she miraculously conceived, gave birth to a son, and this is what God chose to fulfill his promise in. And so Paul's drawing the... the <laughs> curse. No, actually, Ishmael and his mom, Hagar, uh, Sarah later... What happened was Ishmael started mocking and persecuting Isaac when he, you know, was recognized as the son. And so Sarah said, all right, I want her gone. She's out. You know, get her out of here with her son. And God told Abraham, you do what Sarah said. And he, they cast her out. And actually God blessed Ishmael and Hagar because uh, Hagar, she came and put, you remember, you might remember the story. She put Ishmael in the bush yep. and she walked away and said, I'm just going to sit here till we die, you know. Yeah. Uh, and God blessed her. 
and provided for them, you know. And so, so God was actually actually pretty good to them, but they they were not the inheritors of the promise. That makes sense. And I may be wrong in this. I've heard it. I don't know if it's true or not. That's not a good way to start out. Huh? Is he not where the Muslims descended from? No. The a- Arabs. Arabs. There was no such thing as a Muslim till 622 A.D. Muslim is a religion. Arab is a ethnicity. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you got Jewish people descended from Isaac. Arab people descended from Ishmael. Yes. But Muslim, there was no such thing until 600-something A.D. And so they, that, they came, the Muslim Islam came much, much, much later. Uh, but a lot of Arabs are Muslim, so I guess you could kind of put them two together. But anyway, uh, they're both physical descendants, but one is from the flesh, one is from the promise. What do you think Paul's point is? Who is the descendants of the flesh? In this scenario in the Galatian church. The Jewish people who claim to be descendants. Yeah. And why are they descendants of the flesh? Because they're trying to add works to it instead of going strictly by faith. That's right. And how does that correlate to what Abraham and Sarah did between Ishmael and Isaac? They took the works into their own hands instead of believing in They tried to get the inheritance by their own works rather than waiting on the promise of God. And that's the that's the the thing he's drawing here. The Galatians, he's saying, now you got to remember now this okay, I'm a Jewish man even though I'm a messianic Jew, uh, I believe in Jesus but I also keep the law and I'm trying to get these Gentiles to keep the law as well so they can be like me. And I walk in and then you got this other Jewish man Paul's telling me I'm actually a descendant of Ishmael. That would make me mad. I mean, that would make me mad like you're denying my whole history, my whole tradition, my family lineage. I mean, you're denying everything. And so I can imagine it caused a great stir to say he's linking, he's linking them with Ishmael and linking all those in Christ, Jew or Gentile, whoever, with Isaac and saying, you know what, the, the, those that receive the promise are those who are in Christ. Christ is the seed that receives the promise. And if you try to get the inheritance any other way, you're actually showing that you're a descendant not of the promise, but you're a descendant of the works of the flesh. Does that make sense? Any questions? No? Okay. And now he's going to focus on the women for a minute. He's going to show how they're two different covenants. He says, which are an allegory? Anybody know what an allegory is? Know what allegory is? Like a picture story compare. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a big long it's a long extended parable. A parable is you know Jesus' parables. He told an earthly story that has spiritual meaning that usually gives one point. You know, we get in trouble in parables when we try to start connecting lots of different things and making usually the stories in the parables Jesus told just have one point and one point he's trying to get across. Uh, but an allegory is a big, long story that has multiple points of, of contrast. Like, for instance, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's an allegory. The whole thing is about I'm a sheep and he's a shepherd. It's painting a picture of who God is, but it's not saying, it's not saying you can say, 
the Lord is my shepherd. And that paints a picture. Or you can say, God takes care of me. He feeds me. He leads me. He guides me. He, you, know, you can say all the things that a shepherd does. Or you can paint a simple picture and say, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a, it's a story, it's a story that, that demonstrates a truth. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. He's saying this is an allegory for these things. These are, these women, these are, there are two covenants, Hagar and Sarah, two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which leads to slavery is what that means. And that's Hagar. Okay? So Hagar produces the seeds by work. She produces her seed by works, law, Sinai. What does that have to do with Mount Sinai? Why does he compare Hagar to Sinai? What is Mount Sinai? What's significance? That's where the law was given. That's where the Ten Commandments were given. That's where the people were told what they were going to do. But Sarah, she is not, she is, uh, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. She, he uses a figure of slavery to say that if you are working, the whole point is if you work, if you work to gain righteousness, you are placing yourself in slavery to the law. And you will always reach for that righteousness and never be able to attain it because you are not, in, you are not coming to God by His promise. You're coming to God by the law. Does that make sense? I know it's, it's hard to follow. There are, if you were to pick up commentaries or read scholars or pastors at this point here in Galatians, there are all kind of different views because... Uh, I mean, I don't want to get too deep, but he's using something here that's called typology. He's using, he's showing you that Hagar is a type, and a type is a, is something, a person, a place, or a thing in the Old Testament that points forward to the fulfillment in the New Testament. Does that make sense? Like you can see, the Ark of Noah was a type of Christ. It, it shows how you know you're saved in Christ, saved from judgment, and so it's a type. Uh, the Book of Hebrews shows that the temple and the tabernacle are types of Christ. They point forward to what Christ would be. He is our temple. He is our tabernacle. The high priest and all those things was a type and a shadow, foreshadowing what was to come in Christ. That makes sense. I know it's hard to follow, but he is our high priest. He is our, you can go back and look at all these things, the sacrifices, the, the, a perfect example is when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And so he's laying Isaac on the altar and then all of a sudden God says, don't sacrifice him. And there's a ram in the thicket. Okay, God provided a sacrifice. So what's that a type of? Yeah, say God provided a sacrifice. So this is what Paul's doing. He's using these Old Testament pictures to show how their fulfillment is uh, in Christ and through his salvation. And he's saying, look, you can't go back. To the old way. You can't go back to the old covenant. You can't go back and say that I'm, I'm making myself righteous. I'm maintaining my standard with God. I'm maintaining my relationship with God by works. You're going back to the old slavery that came from Mount Sinai. You're, you're going back to living under a covenant that's no longer effective anymore. He says now the promise has been fulfilled. It's come to light in Jesus. And if you uh, are going to be righteous before God, if you're going to, if you're going to inherit the promise that was always intended for God's people, you're going to have to do it through Christ because that's the seed by which we inherit. Does that make sense? I know it's a complicated section. 
Is there any questions? Look at what he says. He says in verse 25, he says, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and it answereth to Jerusalem, which now is. He's saying the Jerusalem that's over there. Paul's standing in Galatia. Oh, he's not standing in Galatia, but he's writing to Galatians. And he's standing there in the first century saying, you see that city over there, Jerusalem? He said, that city is Mount Sinai, and they're enslaved. He says, which now is and is in bondage with her children, verse 26, or verse 25. So he's saying, look, look at these guys. He says, you are, they're coming to Galatia, these Jewish, you know, Judaizers, they were coming and they were saying, look, you need to be like us if you want to be righteous before God. You need to be like us if you're going to hold fast to your uh, righteousness, hold fast to your relationship with God. If you're going to inherit the promise, you're going to have to be like us. And Paul said, no. He said, the Jerusalem that's over there, right now, Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is enslaved to bondage. What bondage were they in under, under? The law. Yeah, they were still keeping the law. Still, at this time, they were still doing the sacrifices. They were still, you know, engaged in... Can you imagine uh, Paul or any of these Christians in Galatia uh, coming and offering a sacrifice in the temple, bringing a bull or goat? They would never have done such a thing because that would diminish the sacrifice of Christ. That would be saying that Jesus is not enough. And so by continuing those things and, and thinking that those things made you righteous before God, they were saying, you're, you're, you're going back to the law. You're enslaving yourself to the very thing that God brought you out of. Does that make sense? Nobody in this modern Brownsville, West Tennessee area is ever going to say, hey, you know, you need to bring a bull and sacrifice it if you're going to be righteous like me. Probably nobody's ever going to say that to you. But there are going to be people all over that think that you've got to look like me, you've got to dress like me. You know, there are people today that say if you wear makeup, you lost. If you wear dresses, you lost. If you don't put your hair up the way I do, you lost. If you, you know, if you do whatever. You know, they had all kind of rules, all kind of things that you have to do. And if you don't do them just right, guess what? You must not be as righteous as I am. It's a have to versus a want to. You know, the people that were falling back onto the law, I mean, they, they really, really knew and believed that you had to follow, you know, the first commandment down to the 10th where, you know, what Paul was trying to get through was I don't have to, but I want to. Yeah. And, and, and there's... And Jesus, and Jesus made that bridge. He, he put that bridge there because he knew I could. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong. Let me make sure we understand. Paul, when Paul hung out with Jewish people, he ate Jewish food and acted Jewish so he wouldn't offend them. And so there's nothing wrong with saying, if, if I'm a Jewish Christian, there's nothing wrong with saying, I, I just can't eat pork or I can't, you know, whatever. It's nothing wrong. If that's your conviction, more power to you. But you can't make that a standard for righteousness for everybody. Does that make sense? If you are a person who thinks for you it's a sin to wear makeup, you know, for some folks it's a sin not to, but if, if, you're, a, if you're somebody who thinks it's a sin to dress a certain way, look a certain way, now we're talking about in moderation. You know, if you're running around with your junk hanging out, you've got a lot more problems than that. But... You know, if you think, if that's you, if that's you and you're, 
more power to you. Knock yourself out. You know, I mean, it's no, no, I would never try to offend your conscience by telling you that you're free to do what you think is sinful. But you can't add to righteousness that Christ has given me uh, when he has freed us from the dictates of the ceremonial law and all all those kind of things. You can't judge another person's walk. Does that make sense? Now, there's a line to be drawn there. So I'm not saying like, you know, if I go out and cheat on my wife, then I'll say, well, you can't judge me because Jesus made me free. You know, that's just stupid. You know, you got the Ten Commandments, those are the moral laws. But as far as the ceremonial law, as far as the civil law, as far as the things that, you know, that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture, you know, you're free in Christ. If it's not commanded or forbidden in Scripture, then you're free in Christ to follow your conscience. God gave you a conscience, you know, for some people, you know, like Valerie's a vegetarian. And she, you know, she wouldn't think it's a sin to eat meat, I hope. But if she did, you know, that's fine. Be a vegetarian. Go, go, more power to you. But don't try to take my steak. You know what I'm saying? Because I, it's just the way it is. And so Paul is not saying, oh, the Jewish ceremonies are bad and all these things are wrong. And he's not saying that at all. He's saying you can't push that on these Gentiles and say that you're lost without them. You can't add to what Jesus did. You have to let them be Gentiles. They can be just as much inheritors of the promises as as you are if they trust in Christ. And you can't push the food laws and all all them other things on them because that's not part of God's new covenant. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? Did the Jews back then that... Paul is preaching to, were they still offering sacrifices? Yes. Did the Jews, did the Orthodox Jews today still do that? No. No. Um, When the the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and so up until that point, they were still offering sacrifices. After that point, they were scattered, and so there was no more temple, there was no more place to offer sacrifices, so the focus became... Uh, focus became not so much on animal sacrifice, but on law keeping, studying the law, keeping the law, those kind of things. So today, if you would run into an Orthodox Jewish person, now there's liberal, conservative, you know, there's all kind of different Jewish people, just like there are all kind of different other kind of people. But uh, for the most part, if you're running into a, an Orthodox Jewish person, talking about you know the black hat with the curls and the, the deal. They're going to be all about law-keeping and studying the Torah, studying the Tanakh, and studying those things and keeping those laws and, and living by God's dictates in that way. And that's their sacrifice for the most part. Is it consistent? Do I understand it fully? No, I don't. So we'd have to talk to one of them as to why. That's my question is... How come you don't do animal sacrifices anymore? That's what your, the book says, you know. So, ask him. He'll he'll probably tell you. He may have lots of reasons, but more more than it's going to be studying the law, keeping the law. You know what he what he would call law is not just thou shalt not, but the whole yes, the, Old Testament. Like Rob, the night we were there, their altar where in the room where they keep their Torahs and it's. It's in a scroll, isn't it, Jennifer? Yeah. Decorated beautifully. 
No. You couldn't get out of there with it and bring it to me or nothing? <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> anyway, so the Torah is the first five books. The Tanakh is what they call the whole Old Testament. So it's the, the law. The law is the writings of Moses. The, the prophets are, of course, the prophets. And the writings are going to be like Psalms and Job and Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes and all those kind of things. They like offering cutting up animals at home. Oh no, that's how. But there's so many things that you have to do. You know, you got to burn it outside the camp and do all kind of offer the entrails and the kidneys and. Peter. Uh-huh. <laughs> he said because of police and all that, he would not disclose that. Because of course I was like, give me their names so I can talk to them. That's gross. But um, he says it's a. He said the way he put it, you know, it's your personal relationship with God and how you worship is personal to you. He said, you know, we take that we have the same thing. It's just we do things that are personal to us, and if it's not something we feel that we need. And of course, the argument was, why is it okay for you not to have to do what he does? Well, that, and that's, the, they're all about law nowadays. That's what he said, for sure. the law is the most important. Yeah. That's the one thing that is grounding that faith. Right. So let's look at verse 26, and then he's going to talk about us. He says, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. And so he's contrasting the Jerusalem that's sitting over there in Israel at the time Paul's writing these and the Jerusalem that's above. What's the Jerusalem that's above? Jesus Christ. It is Jesus. It is. He is the fulfillment of the heavenly Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, the the heavenly perfected Jerusalem is is uh, it's the perfect people of God, the perfect Jerusalem, the way God has always envisioned it, uh, the way it exists right now uh, in heaven. You, you remember, read Revelation where it says, John said, I saw the city descend out of heaven, you know, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so the Jerusalem that is above, I think in Hebrews 13, it talks about even Abraham didn't look for a city here on earth. He looked for a city whose builder and maker was God, you know, that's a heavenly Jerusalem. And so this is very, very important, and it's going to be a it's going to be a source of a lot of disagreement among a lot of people. So you know you're going to get into lots of argument. I don't argue about it. I just let it go. But uh, the New Testament writers over and over again show that the Old Testament prophecies about a perfected Jerusalem are fulfilled in Christ and the people of Christ. 
Uh, all the, all the, if you look over the New Testament, how the New Testament writers interpret prophecy and all those things, all the Old Testament prophets prophesied looking forward to this perfected Jerusalem, this perfected Mount Zion, this perfect uh, place, this perfect city of God that all the nations would stream to and all these things. Uh, the New Testament writers always, always, always interpret those prophecies as being fulfilled in Christ. Not necessarily, you know, well, I guess it would be, but it's all those who are found in Christ. Jew, Gentile, whoever. You know, it's not, it's not just Gentiles over here, Jewish people over here. It's both together is one people in Christ. And so it says in 26, it says the Jerusalem which is above, that's, he's talking about our mother. Jerusalem that is our mother, that is the one, the perfected Jerusalem that's fulfilled in Christ, made through Christ and, and brought about through Christ. And then in verse 27, he quotes Isaiah 54.1. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to speed up just a minute, but... Uh, basically, this quote from Isaiah 54 is, uh, in Isaiah 54, is talking about the, the fulfillment of all these things. The end time fulfillment, the eschatological fulfillment, the, the, what it's all pointing toward, what it's coming to fulfillment in. And Isaiah 53 is the, the, uh, the chapter in Isaiah where it talks about, you know, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our necklaces. It talks about the suffering servant and how uh, it's a prophecy about Jesus. And then in 54, it's talking about how the people of God rejoice in the, the salvation they've been given, the redemption they've been given, the, the fulfillment of all the promises they've been given. And so Paul quotes that verse, Isaiah 54, right here in Galatians uh, 4.27 to show that it is through Jesus and uh, that all these things are fulfilled. It's through Jesus that the rejoicing of God's people is fulfilled in God's covenant promises being fulfilled. Does that make sense? He's saying this over here that you're waiting for in Isaiah 54 is fulfilled right here in Jesus Christ and the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the perfected people of God. Does that make sense? By quoting this verse right here, he's saying this thing that y'all are all waiting for this thing that you've been you know uh, reading about this thing this this glorious time of rejoicing and all this that's that's coming to pass is now here and it's now fulfilled in Jesus Christ that makes sense okay so last couple of verses um, he says he says uh, the sons he, he's getting to his point right here that the sons of Abraham the heirs uh, of, of the promise of Abraham are those of us who are in the new covenant, whether it is Jew, whether it is Gentile. Uh, verse 28 says, Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Who is we? Yeah, believers. Who is, whether they be, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Paul himself was a Jewish man. And he says, We brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. Even so, it is now. Who is the one born after the flesh? Ishmael. Ishmael. And he persecuted Isaac. And he says, the same thing that was going on then is going on now. What is he saying that the Judaizers are doing to the Galatians? They're per How are they persecuting me? Because they're telling them they have to be yeah, they're not chasing them around with whips and they're not beating them and throwing. They're teaching them that 
Jesus is not enough to fulfill their righteousness. And the Jews and the Arabs are still fighting today. Yes, they are. But are the modern day Jews sons of Isaac? If they trust in Christ. Paul's saying that, see, that's what I'm talking about. The modern situation, you can say the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael are still fighting. But who does Paul say the sons of Isaac are? The believers. Yeah. Not just national descendants. Not just, you know, my family's been doing this for 8,000 generations. The sons of Isaac, according to Paul here, according to his argument right here in in chapter 4, the sons of Isaac are all those Jew, Gentile, whoever, that are found in Jesus Christ. Those are the inheritors of the promise. Yes, the Jewish people and the Arabs, they're still fighting. They'll be fighting until the end of... The oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They hate, they hate the... Well, let's, let's... There are Arab Christians as well. It's really the Muslims that are... are they hate the Jews and they... There are there are Palestinian churches. There are Palestinian Christians right now. You know, so it, separate the nationality from the religion. You know, there are Christians that are Chinese, Arab, Muslim, not Muslim. Uh, if you're Muslim, you're not a Christian. There are Christians who are Chinese. You know, all kind of nationalities, all kind of ethnicities, all kind of whatever. So they're Arab Christians. They're English Christians. You understand what I'm saying, right? Man, y'all gonna have to wake up. I'm gonna have to get some more coffee or something. Are y'all everybody understand? Uh, what am I saying? Huh? Yeah, I'm gonna drink some coffee. Not all Arabs are Muslim. Right. Not all Jewish people are Christian. And so the conflict is going on over there now is it's deep-seated geopolitical I mean it's a mess it's just a mess but what we can't do what we can't do is take Christ out of the equation and say like I'm for Israel because Israel's a democracy it's the last one over there in the Middle East and and, you know, they have a right to live. They have a right to not have neighbors saying, we're going to destroy you and all that. But I am i don't believe they have some biblical mandate that they are the people of God. No, sir. If you're not in Christ, you're not the people of God. Well, the Bible tells that it's not a particular geographical location. And that's what you're trying to get across is that the geographical location of Israel and the people in it is not necessarily God's Israel. God's Israel is everybody who is in Christ. And that's proven. You remember what I read to you, Ephesians 2? Is, I mean, I can prove it. The New Testament writers agree with me 100%. There's no, there's no way to interpret those passages other than that. Yes, that's right. They came first, and they were inspired, so I agree with them. Now, that being said, a lot of smart people disagree with me. A lot of smart people. So... It's not an issue where, you know, they're all going to hell or nothing like that. It's, we, just, we just disagree. But it, all of them agree that Christ is the only way to be saved. They just think that there's, you know... Uh, and that, 
that Paul's arguing the same thing or going back to the same thing that has happened since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve did not, they wanted more. God was not enough. God's not enough, yeah. They, you know, they ate from the tree. And it's, it's the same thing that has, you know, happened since the beginning of time. Yes. What I think I see Paul saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is now that the promise has come, the fulfillment of promise to Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus, that you can no longer uh, keep uh, the law as in Sinai to claim the promise of Abraham. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly what he's saying. That's his argument. He's saying the Judaizers are coming into the Galatian church saying, if you want to be children of Abraham and inherit the promise of Abraham, then you have to keep these laws. Paul's saying, no, the inheritance, the children of promise that come from Abraham's line are those that are found in Jesus Christ. And he says that at the, at the end. Let me just read the last two verses and we'll go. It says, Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman. That's where God told Abraham to obey Sarah and throw uh, Hagar out. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be the heir with the son of the free woman. That's what God told him. And then verse 31 is the culmination of his argument. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And uh, like I put in your outline... Chapter 5, verse 1 is a bridge between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so the exhortation he gives based on all that he said before is in verse 1, chapter 5 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What's the yoke of bondage that we don't want to be tangled up in again with? The law, following the dictates of the law in order to be right with God. We desire to follow the law because we have a heart for God. But if you think that keeping the law is what's keeping you in God's right standing, you have submitted yourself to slavery because you'll never be able to attain the goal that you set for yourself. Does that make sense? Very, very hard section. I know it was hard working through and a, a lot of questions come up. There's people that disagree all over the map about what Paul is talking about right here in chapter 4, verse 21 through 31. So if it's, if it's hard, understand it's hard for everybody. And so uh, I've, I've given you what I think is the most accurate contextually. I mean, I can't work through, the, I can't work through section by section uh, and think it is any other way than what we've talked about it being because everything lines up contextually. Um, but understand that, you know, uh, that's a lot of disagreement right here.